and welcome back to Behind the Biography. I'm your host, Joe Thompson, pronouns he and him. And this week, we are joined by Brian Freitag. Brian is a physical scientist at the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, also known as NASA. Uh, in his role, Brian has a bird's eye view of Earth from what feels like a light years away. And today, we're going to talk about what it takes to live out every little kid's dream to work for NASA and some of the memorable experiences he's had along the way. So without further ado, let's go behind the biography with Brian Freitag. Brian, thank you for joining the show. Thanks, Joe. I'm happy to be here. All right, man. I, I, I'm really, really excited to, to, to chat with you. You know, we've, we've had the esteemed pleasure and opportunity to connect with some uh, other individuals who worked at NASA, who've been out in orbit, who've been out in space, and to be able to have that come full circle and to learn a little bit more about some of those amazing things that are happening over at NASA, I think is going to be really, really good time for us today, um, especially with you, because you have some really, really amazing and really intricate experiences with Envision as well um, that I, I'd love to explore with you. So again, thank you for joining the show, man. It's going to be a good one. Yeah, I'm excited. So yeah, let's let's start there before we jump into you know all the fun questions about your professional life and you know what's going on over at NASA. Let's talk a little bit about your connection to Envision and some of our programs. So, what's your what's, what's your what are your connections and your touch points uh, with us? If you'd like to share for the for the listeners. Sure. Yeah. So my first job out of college actually was junior NYLC, uh, walking around DC doing the big three going out to Harper's Ferry. Um, I have a lot of really good memories doing that. And it was a really good summer. I mean, I, I still, I don't know if you guys still listen to, what is it, number 34 by Dave Matthews Band at the end for the oh, retrospective yeah. when they write their journals. <laughs> so like, I, I remember all that stuff. I still, whenever I hear number 34 come on, it's like, oh, junior NYLC. Um, I had a lot of fun doing that that summer. And it's kind of crazy, you know, it's like you spend three months, I think, with a group of people and you make friends for a lifetime. Like I still talk to a lot of the people um, that I met over that program. So that was a really, really positive experience for me, um, being able to work there. And then I also did uh, pick. So I did pick one year and that was a lot of fun too. I mean, it was kind of crazy, uh, but it was a really good experience. Right, right. So you, you mentioned um, the the Junior National Young Leaders Conference and I can't, that's our first connection in terms of the Envision experience, because I am now one of the managers for the Junior National Young Leaders Conference. Um, so talk to me about, you know, your experience with your first job out of out of out of college. Um, you know, what did you get out of that experience for those those three months in that particular summer? Anything that you held on to? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things when you come out of college, you don't necessarily know what's next. Right. And so it was a really nice opportunity to kind of learn how to talk to people. Um, you know, it's one of those things where dealing with kids, you get kind of a, a blunt, um, I guess, reflection of yourself, right? I mean, you can either talk to them and command the room or they're going to run you over. There's not really an in-between. Um, and so I think that really kind of gave me an opportunity to figure out how I wanted to communicate, you know, even if it's something that's not necessarily in my wheelhouse. History is not necessarily, you know, something that I'm a huge a buff on. Um, but being able to get up in front of that classroom, teach that curriculum and talk to those kids and then do it confidently. I think that was something that was really beneficial for me, uh, as I was coming out of college for sure. Awesome. Awesome. Any, uh, any, any students, uh, any memories of students that kind of 
uh, uh, sit with you or, or that you that you still retain? I know I've had these transformational students and, you know, the, that one student who, you know, said that one thing that I will never let go of. Do you have any 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 students that are kind of memorable for you or even those no. who have reached out to you? uh since since those days i can't remember any off the top of my head I, I do remember though that so like i said there was a set playlist and i would bring in my ipod sometimes and play some of the songs and so i think one of the songs or one of the artists i played was ratatat which i don't know if you're familiar with ratatat but it's like <laughs> it's kind of just like instrumental beats and stuff like that yeah. and they're like dude this is pretty sick so like i got my students kind of like you know grooving to my kind of music we really kind of connected on a musical level outside of you know the standard uh, junior NYLC playlist. So it was cool. So how'd you hear about Envision um, back in those days? How, how'd you how, how'd you land that particular interest to come and work with us? Yeah, so honestly, I'd never really heard of Envision as a kid. I wouldn't say that I was uh, a top tier student, you know? And so um, <laughs> the reason that I, I heard about Envision was actually because of my sister. So my sister worked for Envision. She came out of college, kind of did the same thing that I did. I'm not sure if she started with Junior NYLC or, or what, but she had kind of been working around at, at Envision for a few years. And as I was kind of floundering there, she's like, "Hey, you know, if you don't know what you if you don't know what you want to do yet, you know, maybe go take a look at Envision and see if it's something that you can at least get some stopgap expertise, experience, learn how to talk to people, and then you know, it's it's a short term thing, mm -hmm. um, especially within the Junior NYLC program." And so she really kind of introduced me to uh, Envision as a whole. Awesome, awesome, awesome. So that again, that's our connection number two, because you know, your sister is one of our former guests and kind of the top dog around here, uh, Amanda Fartek Thomas, who, you know, has been very influential in me actually being a part of Envision. She's actually the person who recommended I work for Envision full time. So, you know, we have that connection going on yeah. twofold now, you know, in your Envision experience. So it, it's amazing, man. I, and I'm glad that, you know, she was able to to kind of show both of us that path that you know there's some things that you can learn being a part of the envision experience whether it's something for you long term or in, in the short term mm -hmm. so that's amazing for sure yeah i mean it's kind of interesting for her to think of her in, in a situation where you know it's not a family situation you know i've never really interacted with her on a work level because when i was working at envision it was completely hands-off right and so like hearing all these experiences of others working with her and envision it's it's cool you know it's cool to hear that other side for sure oh yeah awesome 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 so let's let's dive a little bit deeper into into you brian and some of the things you have going on on a daily basis um can you give us a little bit more insight into kind of your role over at nasa and and, and what's going on with maybe your teams and some of the projects you may have going on or yeah, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. So I think one thing that people, whenever you say NASA, like the first thing that they think of is rockets, moon, they think about the you know, <laughs> Mars, I mean, they think kind of outer space. And I get it. I mean, that's where NASA's made a lot of their, um, I guess, most monumental accomplishments, you know, sending man to the moon in the 60s is a, is a big one. And it's got NASA's footprint oh, yeah. all over it, right? And so um, my role actually is a little bit more inward seeking. So, you know, you've got satellites that you launch into space, and I think a lot of people look, think that you know, NASA primarily, primarily looks outward, um, but our research more looks inward. So how is Earth changing as a whole? Can we um, you know, understand how the climate is changing, how we can kind of prepare for that climate change? How can um, <clears throat> we make sure that the users 
who want to use NASA's satellite data because we invest a lot of money uh, into launching satellites into space, collecting the data, archiving the data, storing the data. We want to make sure that those users can actually use that data to, to understand you know, the, the physical processes of the atmosphere, the land surface, the oceans, um, the ice sheets. You know, we want to be able to monitor all that stuff so that we can have a better understanding of the Earth system as a whole. Um, and so our group down here at Marshall, uh, it's Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, um, we really focus on making sure that users that want to use NASA's data can use NASA's data. So we have a lot of uh, web platforms and web services that users can come in to visualize data. Uh, we support that. We come in to make sure that uh, users who want to uh, access data directly, maybe you want to look at the physical numbers themselves, or sorry, the digital numbers themselves, then you could come in and actually start looking at, you know, those measurements, and then understand over a specific region, a specific area, over a specific time, how that's changing. Um, mm -hmm. And then make, you know, draw conclusions from that. We want to make sure that everybody that wants to access NASA's data can, is really nice. kind of what our role is. And then my role, or one of the, the things that I'm leading now is this we're also now shifting NASA's uh, Earth Science data holdings to the cloud. So um, right now our Earth Science data archive has something on the order of about 45 petabytes of data. And that's kind of a hard number to kind of visualize. But if you think about the fact that you have, um, you have a, you know, a laptop that has about a, a storage volume of about one terabyte, you're looking at about 4,500 laptops that you would have um, or sorry, 45,000 laptops that you would have to hold all the data that we have in our current archive. And that's growing at an exponential rate, right? So I think we're expecting that to be somewhere on the order of about 250 petabytes of data within the next five years. So you can't oh scale goodness. that up with physical infrastructure in your uh, system. You've driven up 295. I'm sure that you've seen you know, the Goddard Space Flight Center um, yeah. sign on 295. Uh, a lot of our physical computers are, are at Goddard, and that's a fixed you know, area that you can have. You can't keep building buildings to store all that data. So we're offloading some of that data storage onto the cloud. And my role is, one, supporting the, the transition of that data over. Um, and then, two, we're also doing uh, the production of a new data product that's fully in the cloud, where we take data from Landsat, which is a very famous mission uh, from USGS. I think that they did a... a uh, it was in what Kong Skull Island or something like that that they did something like that. Mm -hmm. I was anyhow, uh, <laughs> and then you know data from uh, the Sentinel Two mission, which is the European Space Agency. They they manage that data set. We want to bring those together and you know generate those into a single data set that, so that the so that the data from those two instruments can be used uh, interchangeably, uh, and that just gives you a better time series uh, of how the land surface is evolving over that you know that. Um, the, the length of that archive. So that's my role down there. That's awesome. <clears throat> that's awesome. I think, well, before I jump into kind of some of the, some of the changes that you've noticed about, you know, while, while looking inward, I'm kind of interested in this kind of, and in, in what you mentioned about kind of that data sharing and making sure that those who want information or the kind of that NASA data have access to it. For me, that would be kind of a misconception. I wouldn't go in, having not had that conversation, having not had this conversation with you, I wouldn't have believed that that was something that is a, a mission or a goal of you all's. Mm -hmm. Are there any other just common misconceptions or things that 
you'd like a you know kind of the common listener to kind of know that NASA is doing, whether it be behind the scenes or or outwardly. Yeah, I mean, I think that you know one thing that we want to do is we have a, a very free and open data access policy for all of NASA's data, and then we're also shifting that to NASA's software. So not only can you come in and you access all the data that we're producing, if you want to go and generate that same data set on your own for whatever reason, we also want to you know, give users the ability to do that. I mean, we can't provide the compute capacity for you to do that necessarily, but we can provide you with the code base, we can provide you access to the data, and then if you want to go through and do that process yourself for specific areas or specific regions, you can do that. Um, and so... Uh, it's a little bit different within the earth science community where we're not necessarily dealing with, you know, explosives or propulsion or anything like that, that could be potentially, you know, used uh, in a more harmful way. You know, here we're all just trying to do, you know, from the earth science perspective, we're trying to understand the earth system as a whole. And so that should be open to anybody that wants to learn about it. So I think we've done some, um, some analysis of the HLS data usage. And then, you know, a lot of it comes from, not a lot, but there's, you know, several countries on that list that are in the, you know, the banned list that you might not think would be, uh, we'd be sharing data freely and openly with, but we do, we don't restrict, you know, who can come in and use that data. Um, that's awesome. So that That's awesome. And very refreshing to hear, you know, <laughs> I, I think you, you think about satellites and you think about those satellites being pointed back at earth, you know, you hear the conversation about big brother and what's being monitored and what we're kind of looking at, I think is really, really important to understand what it means to share this level of data. And, you know, that NASA has the capacity to kind of manage it all. I think it's amazing to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me a little bit about, I know you, you're looking at you know, you, you and your team are, are kind of looking at Earth and you, you've got this, you know, very distant view of, of what Earth looks like. I know I'm particularly curious to know what are some of the big changes that you've noticed in kind of that visual of, of Earth since the pandemic has happened? Or have there been any kind of like very interesting notes that you may have seen kind of in that March 2020, March 20, uh, May 2020 kind of space that was very different from what we what you were seeing pre-pandemic yeah it's actually it's a really good question and we had these same you know questions ourselves like well obviously there should be some impact if you shut down you know the global economy as as quickly as we did there should be some you know visible representation of that in data that we can observe easily Mm -hmm. and so what we did is we joined up with uh the european space agency and the japanese space agency jaxa and we said, okay, let's put together this, this data dashboard with all these you know, different measurables to show the impacts of uh, the pandemic on the Earth system. And we looked at it in terms of air quality. Uh, and so really, you know, if you think about the number of cars that you have on the road on a typical day, um, and then you take it to March 2020, when essentially we were all shuttered inside, you, you can see significant impacts in terms of the emissions uh, that we have, particularly over big cities. So if you go to the dashboard, I, I can provide the link to you after this if you want. Um, you know I'm going to ask. <laughs> you can go in and you can see, you know, they, they show you some targeted regions and they'll say, okay, take a look at New York City, for example, and look at the pre-pandemic, you know, volume, or sorry, the, the air quality uh, in the pre-pandemic uh, time frame, And then let's look at the air quality after, and you see a significant difference and a significant improvement in the air quality between those two, just based on purely on the admission, uh, sorry, on the emissions, um, largely from motor vehicles. Another one that we were doing was uh, ship tracking. 
So I think, okay. you know, obviously, especially now, if you've got a lot of ships that are kind of waiting offshore in California to come on, you can follow those ship tracks. You know, they all emit a plume, right? You can see that in the satellite data and you can train a machine learning model to go in and detect, you know, a certain number of um, ship track plumes over a specific location. So if you target that right. over these major port cities in China or in, you know, California, you can see how that shipping um, changes as a function of time. Similarly, you know, air, air travel, we did the same thing with air travel. So similar to a, a ship where you can see the plume coming from the ship smokestack, you can see the same thing coming from a plane. If you just look up a lot of times you can see the contrails. Uh, we can detect that in satellite imagery. And then you can also, again, train machine learning to, to see, you know, how, how many contrails can we actually see over a specific day and then see how that changes as a function of time. And with the pandemic, it's been, uh, you know, obviously it's better now, you know, it's obviously starting to recover, but you know, in June and in, in the spring and summer of, you know, 2020, it was pretty low. It was kind of crazy oh, to kind of see this. That's what I was about to say. I know that had to be like an interesting time for y'all to kind of see that kind of drastic change. I'm pretty sure it happened pretty quickly. Uh, yeah. I can imagine. It's like the entire globe shut down in what a, a, <laughs> a two week period, a, a month, right. month. So yeah, uh, it was it was really really cool to kind of see that in data. I mean, obviously it was you know very impactful for everybody you know on the ground as a whole. But you know you, the visible representation of that in um, our satellite data is really telling in terms of you know what humans contribute to the atmosphere because it was two things. One, you know, like well, how does you know how does the pandemic affect our emissions? But then two, how do humans actually impact the climate? It's a very very you know extreme use case that we can use to study, you know, how we can potentially curtail some of our contributions to climate change. I'm going to need a whole another podcast yeah. with you so we can, so we can have <laughs> that one, Brian. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. it's, it's a really cool use case. And I think it's going to, there's going to be a lot of really cool research done um, just using the pandemic as a whole, the pre and post pandemic emissions are going to be uh, a really interesting use case for people to understand how humans actually impact the climate. Oh man, that's amazing. Well, I, well, I'm keenly aware that if you're, you know, looking at satellites, you know, down above, you're, you're seeing a little bit more than kind of the human interaction and human effect that we're having on both the climate and, and what's happening. I'm sure you're, you know, you got what other, you know, um, other marvels and, and, and beauties of nature, you know, volcanoes and different mm -hmm. things that can happen there. Has there been any other or the most interesting thing you can remember that you've seen in one of those satellite images that you could share with us? Yeah, I think honestly, some of my favorite images to look at are algal blooms. And so it's kind of interesting. I don't know how much, how familiar you are with algal blooms over lakes and freshwater bodies. Break, break it down a little bit for us. Yeah. So, so, so essentially you have sediment that comes into lakes or freshwater and then algae feed on that. And those, as that algae starts to bloom, it degrades the water quality of that water body. And a lot of times those water bodies are used for drinking water particularly in, in you know, third world countries or uh, developing countries. And so it's, they're bad, right? Harmful algal blooms are bad, but they can be very, very pretty to look at in um, satellite imagery because you get a lot of these you know, really nice swirls and, and whirls as it's flowing through the water and you get these eddies in the water that maybe you know, distribute that algae. Uh, and so you can get really, really cool um, patterns in the imagery as you look from the satellite but again it is bad like it is bad <laughs> it's very bad water quality uh, if you see a harmful algal bloom but um they are it's, very it's pretty, pretty it's at. very pretty yeah 
So can you kind of explain, you know, kind of the the, the timing of the images that, that you're seeing? You know, we, we take a, our cell phones, we take a picture really quickly. We can see exactly what, you know, that camera, you know, just snapped right in mm-hmm. that moment. Is there kind of a time lapse between the images you're seeing since, though, you know, that satellite is, is, is so far away? Yeah, I think so. I think you're getting at latency. So essentially, mm-hmm. yeah, what we have is um, a lot of the satellites that we get, we can look at in near real time. So if you've ever heard of the GOES satellite image, that's basically the geostationary satellite that we have that's used to track hurricanes, that's used to track severe weather, um, mm-hmm. fires. I mean, the one that was out in Boulder uh, a oh, couple yeah, weeks ago. That's what I was about to say. Yeah. Um, you know, those you get that data within five minutes. Okay. Um, MODIS, I think you typically get within a three hour uh, time frame. That's our global um, polar orbiting satellite that NASA has up in space. Mm-hmm. Um, and then that takes a whole global footprint every day. Um, it's one kilometer resolution. So if you think about like what one kilometer is, I mean, it's a fairly coarse scale. You can't see a whole lot. You can't see roads. Right. You really are getting a fairly, you know, opaque view of, of the earth in some sense, right? Sure. Um, for our product that we generate with HLS, it's a 30 meter product. We actually are dependent upon data from MODIS before we can produce it. So we have a two to four day latency. So the satellite takes the, or senses the image, it retrieves the data back, it comes down to the ground satellite. And then within two to four days, we can produce the data product that'll you know be available in NASA Worldview or available for download in, in Earth Data Search. That's so. awesome. Thank you, thank you for sharing. And, yeah. you know, tapping into my curious mind and, and some of the things that I've been excited to ask you about. Yeah. Um, so let's transition a little bit. Let's see if we can, uh, you know, ask some questions to inspire here. See if we can tap into some of the things that, you know, our younger crowd are, are looking forward to hearing from you. Um, so just plainly and simply, what, what would you say it took for you to kind of get where, where you are today? Any particular lessons, any particular skills or traits or kind of a, a moment that, that you think kind of catapulted you to, to where you are? Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of interesting. So we talked about Amanda a little bit. Amanda was the book nerd or the bookworm in our family. She was, you know, very focused on her academics. Very smart. I don't think it, I don't think those things change. Right. So I, yeah. I see I see nothing has changed. Really yeah, much. I was not that person. I was the I was kind of the exact opposite. So like if if my sister got grounded, they took away her books. For me, okay. for me, they took away my video games. You know, and I had to stay inside and come play sports. So like I was not necessarily the best student. And so my mom loves to tell this story, but she would always say um, she would give me nine weeks. And if I didn't have, you know, good grades at the end of that nine week period, then she'd get on me and start, you know, making sure that I did my homework, make sure that I would start getting good grades and I could do everything. I was just lazy. Mm. I was a procrastinator. Um, and so I don't know if that's inspiring or not. Maybe I'm setting a bad example, but, but, you know, I guess that's all to say is that I'm not necessarily somebody that you would look at and say, you know, if you ask my elementary school teachers, high school teachers, I mean, I think that they all thought that I, you know, was capable of everything. Um, but I was not the best student. And so uh, it took a while for me to kind of figure out where I wanted to go um, academically. I always was interested in weather. So my mom was a teacher. Um, she had a weather station and would call in to you know, the local news stations. And you know, we were the weather spotters for Culpeper County. We'd call in and say, hey, you know, hi, today was, you know, let's say 45, the low was 21. We had no you know, rain or snow. Um, and then we would report that every day. 
because that was that was before they had the weather bug stations that you know they just talked to now um and so i would you know sit there and watch news with her sometimes they'd say her name on air and that was just how i got interested in weather um and so i had always known that i wanted to do that and so in third grade i went and you know talked to topper shut who's a meteorologist up there at wusa now uh, he's still there um, when I was in high school, I went and connected with Brian Vandegraaff, who's at WJLA, uh, and I actually interned with him uh, my junior year uh, of uh, college. Um, and so as I was going through those transitional phases within meteorology, I would ask them, I was like, hey, you know, what do you recommend for me moving forward? Because I didn't necessarily know what I wanted to take. I knew I wanted to do something with weather. And if you tell somebody that, you know, you want to do something with weather, typically the first thing they're going to say is on air broadcast meteorologist. Right. Um, and so they were like, no, you need to focus on your math. And so I went in and I really started to hammer math, you know, high school, uh, after I started talking to Brian Vandegraaff, I went in and, you know, I, I really focused on uh, my calculus. A lot of what we do here is calculus. Uh, to the point that when I, I was so confident in my calculus abilities coming out of high school that the first calculus class I took in college, I got a C, I think it was a C minus because okay. I was like, oh, dude, I don't need to study. I'm good. I've got it. And so like the game changed when I went to college for sure. Um, and so when I went to college, it was kind of interesting because I was, I was a swimmer at college. And so it was really hard for me to negotiate the academic versus athletic balance. And it is a balance. It's hard mm. uh, to do that. And you don't necessarily always have the best role models to tell you that your academics are you know, more important than your athletics. Gotcha. Um, and so that took a while. So that's why when I came out of college with a, you know, an undergraduate degree in mathematics, I was like, well, what's next? Um, I had applied to go to, so uh, taking a step back in 2007, they cut the, the men's swim team uh, my junior year. And so I still had a year of eligibility. And so I applied for grad school um, and you know I was sitting there fairly confident that I was gonna be able to get in and then use my last year of eligibility in grad school. Um, <clears throat> and so I applied and I, I didn't get in. You know, I didn't get into grad school. Um, for meteorology. And I think that was kind of a, an eye-opener, right? I mean, I think that there are different things along the way. And for me, it's points of failure that I kind of hold on to um, that I then use as motivation moving forward. Oh, yeah. uh, and so I've carried that one with me. You know, obviously it's still a very raw memory. I remember it. Um, <clears throat> then I went and did some time with Envision. I worked for a couple of years in Swift and then, you know, applied for grad school again. I was like, I've got a couple of years under my belt. I applied to grad school. I got into to two of the three places that I um, nice. that I applied for. Went to Connecticut, got you know a, a degree up there, and wasn't sure that I had the skill set that I needed. You know, like I, I again started to apply for more because I had just gotten a master's degree, and I was thinking, okay, you know, what's the next step? I really wasn't sure, so I kind of leaned on education again, and I think I applied to seven schools for my PhD mm -hmm. program. I got into one of them. <laughs> Oh, wow. And it's one of those things where, um, you know, I, it was another one of those kind of eye-opening experiences like, okay, so I came out of undergrad with a degree in math, was confident that I was going to be able to get, um, you know, into a grad school, which I guess I did on the second, second attempt. 
Then I thought that, well, I'm a shoe in now because I've already got a master's degree and I wasn't, you know, it's like another thing that I kind of held on to um, that really kind of motivated me as I got into, Mm -hmm. got into grad school. And so then when I got into grad school down here in Alabama, um, you know, the, the program was a lot more research focused. And so I started trying to understand, you know, what research, you know, I wanted to take part in what I wanted to do as part of my next step. And that was the first time that I really understood the role that NASA played within earth science. So coming out of my my first grad school, I think I knew that NOAA was another potential path. You've got the national weather service. So it was really national weather service or broadcast met. And I wasn't really, I didn't feel qualified for either of those at that point. Okay. So then that's when I came down to Alabama and said, okay, well then there's this third option that's NASA or academia. And so I can start looking into that a little bit. And so it was funny. We have, um, we almost have like a professional development class, uh, as part of our program that we kind of learn how to write proposals learn how to, you know, build up your resume. And one of the assignments that we had was, um, write a five or 10 year vision for where you hope to be. Maybe it was 15 years. I don't remember exactly. And at the time, I mean, I I had written that I was going to come back to Goddard. And then I was going to work at Goddard. They've got the Global uh, Modeling and Assimilation Office, which basically does all of you know NASA's Earth Science modeling, mm-hmm. um, which was you know that was the focus of my my research was modeling at the time. And I had completely overlooked the opportunity that was literally in front of me at Marshall. Like we're in the same building as you know the the Earth Science branch here at Marshall Space Flight mm-hmm. Center. And so it's another one of those situations where. I couldn't necessarily see, you know, all the opportunities that were right there in front of me. And so I think one of the things that, that I've learned is, you know, you've got to kind of just open your eyes and sit for a second in terms of where you are and look around, you know, it took Mm -hmm. me a while to, to kind of open up. I was somebody that would always kind of be, I'm I'm much more introverted than extroverted. And so I would, I would really kind of just look in and I would walk down the hallways and I'd, you know, keep my head down and not necessarily look uh, and interact with people. Um, gotcha. But I think that, you know, that was something that was kind of eye opening now as I reflect back on that path. Like the job that I'm in now is in front of me for the six years or seven years that I was in grad school, you know, getting my, my dissertation or my PhD, you know. So it's like sometimes you just have to open up to the, you know, opportunities that are right before you and not necessarily be looking elsewhere for, for what might be there. So fair enough. Fair enough. It sounds like, you know, there are a couple of things that that I'm hearing in your story as well. And it's, you know, kind of walk when you walk your path, walk it with your head up. Um, that way you don't miss anything. And then, you know, use, you know, kind of your, your obstacles and use those challenges that you've overcome as fuel because um, everybody has an underdog story and the best ones are the ones where we come out uh, as winners. So I appreciate you sharing, Brian. It's really, really impactful. Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I mean, everybody's got chips, right? I think that's one of the things that I, I sat down with one of the professors down here and talked about that maybe in my third or fourth year. He said, everybody's got a reason that they're here. Every, it takes a lot for you to go through. You know, if you want to go get your PhD, it takes a lot. There has to be external motivation there. You're not going to necessarily find it all from within. And for a lot of people, that's going to be a failure. And so, you know, learn from your failures and, and go forward with it. You know, it's, oh, man, I love it. it's not a limitation. It. It's a springboard. You know, I mean, failures are a springboard. Absolutely. 
So absolutely, man. Goodness gracious. I know we hold. I love. I love that. You know, a, a few anecdotes that just relate to one that you know we use quite a bit. And our new junior team is, you know, we don't do. We don't have losses. We only lessons. So mm -hmm. you know, there. There's no way you can lose if you learn from it. So. Man, I appreciate that message so much. And I think, you know, our listeners will, will take a lot away from that, especially coming from, you know, a young uh, topper shut over here yeah. and, <laughs> and getting things done. So actually, since I brought it up, um, you know, you talked a little bit about kind of what got you down the path of, um, you know, weather and your interest in meteorology. And the impact your mom had, but I, I I hear that you were actually as a, as a young pup. You talked about high school, but even earlier than that, back at a young six year old uh, Brian was writing letters to the the local meteorologists. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you talked to us a little bit about that experience and what it, what it was like at that particular time for you to, to to write those letters. It's funny, you know, like I think in third grade I, I was writing letters to Phil Sims for the New York Giants, my big Giants fans. Okay. It's been a rough couple of years for my for me and my Giants. But it was Phil Sims and Topper Shut. You know? <laughs> and so it's like, you know, the sports figures, sure. I mean I think a lot of you know a lot of young boys will probably write to sports figures that they idolize. But then the meteorologists usually you don't get the same. And so I think I was writing to Topper Shut sometime around the third grade, trying to get him to come down to Culpeper to visit the school. And he's like, you know, listen, we, we only usually do fourth grade and up. And I get it, you know, attention spans are not necessarily the best for, for younger kids. <laughs> and, but he invited me up there. And so we're coming up on Martin Luther King Day. So I was, you know, Martin Luther King Day on, you know, I think it was third grade for me. So I was, what, eight years old? Awesome. He brought me in and got to sit down and we got pictures of me and Amanda sitting, you know, in front of the seven day forecast on, you know, January 17th or whatever it was in 1996 and or 1995, something like that. Oh, man. So that is awesome. Yeah. That is awesome. I love it. I love it. Thank you. Thank you for sharing, man. It, it's, it's also amazing to hear that you're kind of where you wanted to be like I, I mentioned like you're living out you know a dream that every kid has dripped up at, at some point in time right you know to be able to do exactly what it is they dreamed of or to be able to hold a seat in nasa or to you know work alongside individuals who are going into space on a regular basis and you're you're there and i think that's amazing and i appreciate you for spending the time with us today to talk a little bit about that and to, to get a couple laughs off of yeah. our connection yeah. um, and your experiences with Envision, Brian. It's, it's been really, really fun to, to, to take some time with you today. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, I'll, I'll leave with one, one point. And so I think the thing is that if you had sat down with me as a kid in Culpeper County High School when I was you know, 15, 16 years old, and you said, hey, look, in 20 years, you're going to be working for NASA, working with Earth Science, doing you know, Earth Science research, um, I would have called you crazy. You know, I, well, one, NASA does earth science research. Are you serious? <laughs> so that's one area that we're trying to do, you know, expand our you know, knowledge base that people know that we do that and get that data into high schools and middle schools to kind of build the next generation of scientists. But then two, you know, a kid from a small town, um, working, you know, their dream job with a dream company. I mean, what more can you ask for with that? So anything is possible. You just got to kind of put yourself on the right path and connect with people. Obviously, you know, it's a lot easier to connect with people in the digital age. And so my stuff is easily searchable. If people want to follow, you know, go ahead and follow, find me on LinkedIn, find me on Twitter. Um, 
I'm happy to connect and help people get where they need to go. Do you mind um, giving us some some information where we can find you since you mentioned it, whether it be social media or also providing some of the the links that we talked a little bit as well, where we can find some of that data sure. that's accessible? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I'll share those links out. I mean, I think my my Twitter handle is Frytag B. I don't really post much except for giant stuff, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so it's been a pretty disappointing timeline uh, over the past couple of years. But um, yeah, any any way you you know people want to connect with me, and if they have. You know, maybe somebody is out there that's interested in weather. Maybe they're interested in working with NASA's or science, you know, division. Let me know. I'm, I'm happy to help. I only got here because people helped me get here, right? And so you've got to lean on other people to get where you want to go. You're not going to be able to do it by yourself, and that's okay. Man, so. I appreciate you so much for stopping by and, and talking with us and for also being that resource for, you know, so many individuals who are still chasing their dreams and are looking for that, that one thing to get them over the hump. Um, so if we have an opportunity to connect to, pardon me, if we have an opportunity to connect you with those individuals, we're going to do everything we can to do it. Uh, we'll make sure to post all of your contact information um, as we upload this particular uh, podcast episode. Um, but Brian, man, thank you for, for giving us the opportunity to go behind the biography with you, man. It's been, it's been great. I appreciate the time, man. It's been an awesome conversation. This has been another amazing episode of Behind the Biography. Thank you to our guest, and thank you so much for tuning in. You can find this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're interested in our programs, please visit our website at envisionexperience.com. Also, we'd love to hear from you. So check us out on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and even LinkedIn, and tell us what you think at Envision Experience.